Greetings, my fellow Dungeon Masters. This is Tim. Welcome back to Knights and Nerds podcast. I want to say thank you very much for listening to this episode, and we have a lot to talk about today. I do want to first start off by saying hello to any newer listeners. Um, we recently had a announcement from our friend Dungeon Master Dave, who does a crazy amount of work putting out free content for 5th edition we're sort of teaming up, and he made a post for us uh, on Instagram, which is very kind of him. And, of course, a lot of people checking out that latest episode, and hopefully they're going back to the start to listen from the beginning uh, to hear what this podcast is all about. But if not, what I'll do is just a quick summary of why this actual play podcast is a bit different from most of the other ones out there. And it's for this reason that I'm posting episodes like this, where it's just me, and not my players, and I'm talking about things that have happened, things that I'm planning, and how I'm sort of adjusting to decisions that the players have made. And this episode is particularly in-depth because uh, we're at the point now where I really do need to disclose uh, a lot of big details about the campaign. So far, I've been keeping it fairly focused on the player's immediate mission and not talking about any twists that I have planned, and I have alluded to a couple. So if you are not interested in having everything spoiled for you, and this will, this episode will absolutely get to all of the, well, maybe not all, but the main plot points that are coming up perhaps in the next few months, uh, as much as I would like for you to keep listening, maybe just stick with the campaign regular actual play episodes. If you don't want everything spoiled, don't listen to these behind-the-screen episodes. Simple as that. But if you are wanting to get in on the discussion, if you are wanting to know, then by all means stick around. Welcome. And I would say feel free to head to our Facebook page, Knights and Nerds Podcast. Under the Groups button, there is a closed group for Dungeon Masters where we talk about all the behind-the-scenes details I ask for feedback, I ask for suggestions. So if you want to help out and make suggestions about perhaps various things that are coming up and talk about all these things that I have planned coming up, by all means, head over to our Facebook page and join that group. Okay, and this is your final warning. Final warning. If you don't want things spoiled for you, stop listening now. Still with me? Okay, let's get into this. First off, let's do a quick recap. There wasn't too much that happened in episodes 11 and 12 that I really want to go back and talk about. Uh, Faye finally did kill someone, which was kind of a surprise. I was beginning to expect that that might never happen. Candace, who plays Faye, typically struggles with how to be useful in combat scenarios. She's very useful in social scenarios, but struggles to contribute in a meaningful way when the fighting starts. Something that I did discuss with her, though, was the fact that she seems to be overlooking perhaps one of the best bard abilities of any subclass that belongs to the College of Glamour, and it's the Mantle of Inspiration. She did use it once, I believe in episode 6, but hasn't used it since. This ability, the Mantle of Inspiration, definitely would have come in handy uh, during the fight with Raynor, and also especially in the fight in episode 14, which we'll talk about shortly. But in case you don't know offhand what Mantle of Inspiration does, 
Allow me to read it for you. Alright, so this is an ability that bards in the College of Glamour get at third level. As a bonus action, you can expend one use of your bardic inspiration to grant yourself a wondrous appearance. When you do so, choose a number of creatures you can see and that can see you within 60 feet, up to a number equal to your charisma modifier minimum of one. Each of them gains five temporary hit points, and when a creature gains these temporary hit points, it can immediately use its reaction to move up to its speed without provoking opportunity attacks. The number of temporary hit points increases when you reach certain levels. So as of now, the bard is level five, and that ability, Mantle of Inspiration, is limited only to the number of bardic inspiration die that she has. So it could be used conceivably multiple times in a single day, or perhaps even more than once in a single encounter. That's eight temporary hit points to every other member of the party, and allowing them to use their reaction to move up to their speed with no opportunity attacks. Uh, that's pretty huge. Uh, definitely, in my opinion, one of the strongest bard abilities of any bard subclass. Hopefully she uses it in coming sessions, as I predict there may be some difficulties that they'll run into where it will be pretty crucial. Anyways, moving on. In episode 13, I made a couple of errors. I didn't do the cavefisher attacks properly, and I also didn't do the troglodytes properly. I didn't I completely forgot about their stench ability. I was just so excited to be playing that I was only really glancing at the rule books and not, not giving it the attention that it deserved. Oh well. Later in episode 13, uh, when the group ran into the drow, I did not expect the deep gnome to be so terrified. But kudos to Tom for role-playing that element. Uh, I probably should have known that other more peaceful races of the Underdark would be afraid of any drow. I also expected that they would simply pay her to secure her services. Uh, every member of the party has a fair amount of gold for their level and really nothing to use it for. I mean, to me it seemed to be a pretty simple transaction, and the drow seemed fairly forthcoming, but I suppose really I only have myself to blame for instilling in them this sense of distrust, not trusting NPCs. That's also something that we'll get to uh, in a bit. Faye did seem to relent and was going to simply pay Lilith, but then Giladob unilaterally decided that no, they were not going to trust the drow. And at this point I was sort of torn on how to proceed. On one hand, she could decide that the players were her enemy, and that she could try to lead them into a dangerous situation with the intention of injuring one or more of them uh, in an attempt to escape. But this would be far from a, a sure thing that she'd be able to accomplish that and would also put herself in danger. And from my standpoint, Lilith at her core is self-interested. Uh, so she would proceed more carefully and more pragmatically. I knew that I wanted the group that she was leading, the Dragonborn, in service of Agarand, to try to come to rescue her. So I decided that who she allied herself with, ultimately, would come down to one choice, whether or not she deemed she could trust the majority of the party, of the players, I should say. 
Faye had already made her case, and in episode 14, when the Dragonborn appeared, Lilith asked for a weapon, and if Vanna had declined and not given Lilith a weapon to defend herself with, she would have betrayed the group at the earliest opportunity. But since Vanna chose to trust Lilith, and because Spruce also made a visible gesture to support this, she decided to fight with them. And as a result, they escaped that encounter by a very narrow margin. That encounter, of course, I'm talking about the one in episode 14. And that encounter led to quite a lot of discussion in our group. And perhaps I should start by saying this. If Lilith had not been on the side of the PCs, I don't know how the group could have overcome and triumphed in that encounter. Uh, I was ready for the possibility that the heroes might lose the encounter, and if it came down to it, uh, Lilith would have instructed the Dragonborn not to kill the PCs, which would be her way of repaying them for saving her from the troglodytes. But one of the players, when the encounter was done, when our session was done, uh, expressed that... I won't be vague, I'll just say... Tom, who plays Gildob, thought that I had pulled punches, essentially handing the party a chance to escape when the Umberhulk appeared. And it got me thinking, maybe I did. In reality, I expected the party to be able to handle the Dragonborn with not too much difficulty and still be in fighting condition once the Umberhulk appeared. But in the last campaign planning episode, I did say that I wanted the party to get a little bit beat up which is what happened, but it was mostly their own fault. I think if the encounter had gone the way I thought, with them fighting the Dragonborn, winning without too much injury, it would have been still a tough fight once they had to fight the Ember Hulk. But as far as the fight with the Dragonborn went, it was so close to going very far in one way or the other. And by that I mean, if only a few aspects of the encounter had played out differently, the outcome could have been very lopsided for either side. One factor for this, of course, was Lilith. If Venna had not given her weapon, she would have worked against the player characters, and it would have been three against six instead of four against six. And I say three because, again, Faye is not really a presence in combat scenarios. So really, in, in terms of damage output, you only have Spruce, Gilladob, and Vanna. So it may have been three against six instead of four against six, and that would be best case scenario. It may have been three against seven if the Dragonborn had managed to free her. Another factor that made things more complicated for the players was Spruce. For the first two rounds of combat, he didn't do anything. He aimed his bow at the monk, but refused to attack. Uh, I'm not sure why he didn't attack. He was waiting for the monk to draw what they assumed to be a magical staff. But we were in initiative. They knew that there were other hostile opponents coming from the other end of the cave. If Spruce had focused his attacks on the monk, it's entirely possible that the monk could have gone down in the first couple of rounds, freeing Spruce to target other dragonborn. And with Faye contributing no damage output in the first two rounds of combat, only Vanna, Gilly, and Lilith were doing any fighting. The third factor, as I mentioned earlier, Faye overlooking perhaps her most useful ability, the Mantle of Inspiration. Uh, this could have saved Vanna potentially. Could have saved Vanna from being knocked out by the Dragonborn Barbarian, uh, providing that she was able to get herself out of the web. 
The fourth element of the fight was that, uh, in general, the group was not working as a team at all. This did not have to be a hard encounter, but they made it a hard encounter. On the first round of combat, they could have done a number of things. Uh, they knew that there, as I said before, that there were hostile creatures, they didn't know exactly how many, coming from behind them. So in the first round of combat, they could have simply charged past the monk, up the stone ramp to secure the high ground, and would have been able to wear down the dragonborn with ranged attacks because they had started at the exact opposite end of the cavern. So when Tom had said in the aftermath of that fight that they weren't being allowed to fail, that I wasn't allowing them to fail, uh, I was a bit surprised. Uh, in my mind, they very nearly did fail. I think I did go a bit easy on Spruce when he was carrying Vanna in that I didn't want to get bogged down with the rules around carrying capacity, so I just made it a call uh, saying that he couldn't dash, which I thought was kind of fair. I think with the rules as written for carrying capacity, he may have been able to get away with more movement. But I asked myself afterward if Tom was right, uh, regardless of how this encounter actually played out, I asked myself if I was ready to let one or more of the players die. Player characters, I should say, not the players. Uh, and I don't know if I've ever really been cognizant about really being fair if it means the death of one of the players. And this was one of those rare situations where a player character death was very possible as a result of their own choices. Again, as I said before, I don't think I made that an exceptionally difficult encounter. Something else I should mention, uh, at the very end of it, Spruce was very close to being unconscious. Uh, the Barbarian could have tried to kill Vanna while she was down, and I chose to bring the Umber Hulk into the mix when I did. And even though I was planning on bringing it in anyways, did I do it in a way that absolutely saved the players? It seems like I did, but I don't think that was my intention, but I think that's the way it played out. And since that question has been brought up, I've really been thinking a lot about it, and really... I do have to let them fail, if it comes down to it. Even though I'm building a lot of details of the campaign around their characters and around their characters' backstories, there has to be the possibility that all of that goes out the window if one or more of them dies. This is regardless of the fact that we're recording and podcasting this and trying to make an engaging story with characters that people hopefully like listening to. If anything, that encounter reminded me that I need to be even-handed. Sure, I did want the players to have fun, and that's really the primary goal, I think, for most Dungeon Masters. But it should also be challenging at times, and if they end up mishandling another encounter, I definitely will be more mindful about consequences. We can talk about episode 15 briefly. I tried a chase mechanic that I had never tried before, and I think it went fairly well insofar as the players enjoyed it. I wanted to create a set of challenges that revolved more around their choices, how far they would push themselves, what chances they could afford to take, things like that, instead of just straight up dice rolling. And again, I do have to give credit to how that chase played out to the Angry GM. Very entertaining website. Uh, go check it out. Now, if I could change anything about that episode, I would have started the Umber Hulk maybe a bit closer to them, perhaps two turns away to create more of a sense of danger. 
Uh, I also would have adjusted the final challenge somehow. The part involving the jump to the ledge where half the party fell into water down below, I hadn't fully thought out of what the circumstances of failure would look like. But one thought I did have was that if they reached that point and they were only so many turns away from the Umber Hulk, so many turns ahead of it, that it could catch up to them and get a free attack or something like that. Perhaps more than one attack, depending on how many turns ahead they were when they reached that ledge. In general, I'm trying to incorporate more of this type of player decision-making as we continue the campaign. In episode 16, once again, I wanted to structure the exploration around these sorts of choices involving risk assessment. Do they try for the more direct and riskier route, or do they opt for the safer but longer route that would expose them to potentially more madness checks? One thing that did surprise me in episode 16 is that the players decided to test their luck and tried to sneak past the Iron Titan instead of trying to find a different path. In the next episode, they are going to be fighting this Iron Titan. In the Knights and Nerds Dungeon Master group on Facebook, I did have some excellent suggestions for the design of the Iron Titan. Uh, in the end, I decided to use the base stats for the Shield Guardian in the Monster Manual, but with a few additions. One addition being the power source. As mentioned in the previous campaign planning episode, I want to sneak the diamond that the players need for Elwyn's device into the frame of the Iron Titan. This diamond is what allows it to use its lightning bolt ability and also allows it to use the spell Levitate. I don't know if I'll have the occasion to use that spell, but just in case. The player characters will be able to target the diamond by itself, but it will have a higher armor class, maybe 23 or 24, and it will have its own smaller block of hit points. If they hit the diamond, the titan will appear to malfunction and will suffer some drawbacks like losing its reaction for a turn and maybe losing its multi-attack ability for a turn. And I want to say thanks to Paul and the Dungeon Master group for suggesting the malfunction aspect for this. If they deal enough damage just to the power source, then the titan will go down temporarily and the diamond will be dislodged. But they won't be fighting only the Iron Titan. The noise of this combat will attract some other enemies, namely the surviving Dragonborn, from their encounter in Episode 14. After the first few rounds of combat with the Titan, the Dragonborn will show up and give the player characters something else to worry about. As mentioned before, I think changing the conditions of the encounter is something that's important to do. Uh, doubtless, the players will quickly hatch a plan to deal with the Iron Titan, which they will then have to either adapt, change, or abandon altogether once the Dragonborn show up. That's only going to be the Sorcerer, one Dragonborn Grunt, and the Wood Elf Shadow Monk that survived, so the appearance of these other enemies won't be exceptionally difficult. But overall, it will be a hard encounter, and rightly so, as this is a campaign milestone that they're accomplishing. And... Shigar Stoneskin, the leader of the Warriors Alliance, who's been in hiding since very early on in the series, is also in the ruins and will join the player characters in their fight if the combat begins to drag on. Or maybe not, I don't know. I just had said that I didn't want to bail the player characters out, right? So, hmm. Maybe he'll only show up after the combat's done. But why is he down there? Good question, and it leads into our discussion of my master plan for the campaign. So far, we've just been discussing things that have happened, 
a little bit of things that are going to happen in the immediate episodes. But from here on out, we're talking about big picture stuff. We're talking about having some major, major surprises spoiled right now. So if you're not if you're not up for that, now's your chance to maybe switch to a different podcast. We're not a different podcast, just another one of our episodes that isn't this one. Also, and I don't really feel like I need to say this, but I want to anyways, just in case, just in case, if you're listening to this and you have questions and you want to talk about it, please do not post it on the Facebook page where everyone else can see it, uh, because that would spoil it for others who perhaps aren't interested in hearing everything that is going to happen. If you want to talk about it, you can message me directly via email, nightsofnerdspodcast at gmail.com. Join the Dungeon Master group, as I've already said a couple of times. You can send me a direct message on Twitter or Instagram. We're at Nights and Nerds, but please be cool and don't post the spoilers on the Facebook page. Please and thank you. Okay, here we go. And again, final, final warning. That was a penultimate final warning before, and this is the ultimate final warning. You may have asked yourself, hey, if the diamond which Elwyn needs for his device to rescue Kalira is available in a device that he created himself, that's the Iron Titan prototype, why didn't he tell the player characters about it? You may have asked yourself what that strange structure was that the player characters found in episode 16. What exactly was it that Faye found herself reading? Why is Shigar stone skin underground? Why do people on New Life react so strongly to Faye's charming presence? What does any of this have to do with Egarand and Arizax? Before I answer all of those, I want to ask my own question. Would it be interesting if the final bosses of this campaign were a half-dragon fighter and a sorcerer? Really? Mm, Not especially. If you remember back to episode 6, the players overheard Agarand and Irizax talking. The half-dragon and his sorcerer were just walking through the city. And Vanna eavesdropped on them. What did it sound like they were saying? It sounded like they were trying to find out what happened to Kalira. And that's exactly what they're trying to figure out because they don't know. They are not the ones responsible for her disappearance. It certainly looks like they are. And Agrand is not going to show weakness by publicly acknowledging that he has no idea where his nemesis has disappeared to. He and Arizax are quietly trying to figure out what happened while at the same time trying to complete their main plan of dismantling the interplanar barrier. Kalira's disappearance is entirely coincidental, but a coincidence that occurred in such a way that the player characters are certain they know that Agarand and Arizax are responsible. They are absolutely sure of that. And there was a phrase that Elwyn used in episode 6. If the phrase grand design jumped out at you, you might have an inkling of what's happening. If you thought that in episode 16, the heroes found themselves inside of an old nautiloid, you may have an inkling of what's going on. And I'll let you look those things up real quick. If you happen to have Volo's Guide to Monsters, you can read about the grand design on page 73. 
And you can read about nautiloids on page 78. Now, I didn't really describe a nautiloid in my game the way it's described in the book, which is fine. I just wanted it to be different. Now, before I continue, I, I really do want people's feedback on if you think this approach is going to be a good twist, if it's maybe very ambitious but possible if I foreshadow it in appropriate ways, or if this twist will come from too far out of left field and simply seem like I'm changing the entire nature of the campaign on a dime. So yes, if you have Volo's Guide to Monsters, Grand Design is a term you can find on page 73, and on page 78 you'll find some stuff about nautiloids, which, for lack of a better term, are spaceships that are used by mind flayers. So what was going on underneath Pharaoh's Point? Well, the ruins described by me so painstakingly as alien are the remains of an ancient mind flayer city or colony. And the mind flayers are coming back to claim what is theirs. While Agaran and Erzax are a very real threat to the heroes and to Pharaoh's Point and really to the entire realm, they're not really the main threat. Behind the scenes, Mind Flayers have been sowing the seeds of chaos in a multitude of ways that will allow them to reclaim the entire city of Pharaoh's Point, and then the entire realm of Iterin soon after that. So here's how they're going to go about executing that plan of theirs. There are four phases to their plan, not in order, really. These are sort of carried out simultaneously, with the exception of the final phase. So the plan entails the following. You create thralls to be your eyes and ears, if you're a mind flayer. Remove as many threats as possible. Prepare the population, the local population, that is to say, the city of Pharaoh's Point, to be subjugated. And the final phase is to summon the Elder Brain to oversee the beginning of a new colony. So let's break this down. Number one, create thralls. You know what the scariest thing about a Mind Flayer is? It's the intelligence. Even a handful of Mind Flayers are a world-altering power. And in Pharaoh's Point, somewhere in Pharaoh's Point, there are a handful of Mind Flayers led by an Ulatharid that have been influencing the balance of power for over a year. The average Mind Flayer has an intelligence score of 19, making it smarter than all but the very smartest of beings. And since they aren't terribly strong physically, they have to make sure that they have in their service a number of powerful thralls that can do their fighting for them. A Mind Flayer reveals itself only when absolutely necessary. Otherwise, its thralls will fight its battles, the thralls will die for it, and the thrall will, say, assemble a group of heroes unlikely heroes, to help it assemble a complex magical device. That's right. That's right. Elwyn is a thrall. You may have noticed him contradicting himself. In these instances, you have noticed his true self trying to overcome the personality that the Mind Flayers have built for him. When trying to recall the passphrase for the Pillars, for example, he said, don't remember, don't remember, don't remember. Was he saying that he didn't remember, or was he pleading with himself 
not to remember so that he didn't have to reveal that information. I'm really hoping that the players will pick up on these subtleties once the twist is revealed and that they will see all of the warning signs in hindsight, all the things that they missed. A good twist, as Dan Felder in the GM's Guide podcast said, and he has a whole episode on twists that's really helpful, a good twist has to be post-dictable. There have to be logical warning signs, logical evidences, things that will make the players go, oh, that's what that was. They didn't realize it at the time, but in hindsight, they will understand. So Elwyn, of course, the real Elwyn, didn't want to reveal this information, the passphrase for the pillars, because he doesn't want to build the device that the mind flayers need for their final phase of their plan. So the device that he's having them build is not to bring Kalira back. For the same reason, he did not tell the player characters about the diamond that's inside the Iron Titan prototype. The same reason he hasn't told the player characters the truth about the New Life elixir that he created and about why people on New Life respond to certain types of commands. We'll get to that shortly. The device that he's having the players build is to finish phase four, to bring an elder brain into Pharaoh's point. Shigar Stoneskin is also a thrall. He went into the ruins to protect the pillars from the dragonborn. The mind flayers knew that he would be a threat, being the formidable warrior that he is, and they got to him at some point undetected. If and when the players do discover the real threat, and they'll discover it sooner or later, it's just a question of when, they may end up having to fight Shigar Stoneskin. I anticipate that this will be problematic at least for Spruce Lee, and hopefully for the entire group if they end up making friends with him. The second part of the Mind Flayer plan, remove the most powerful threats from the equation. This obviously is clearer. The Mind Flayers are responsible for teleporting her out of Pharaoh's Point. And I do have an idea as to where she went, but officially I'm keeping it undetermined until I see how the campaign progresses. The Mind Flayers had their own teleportation device that they were using to try to enact their final phase of their plan, but it malfunctioned. It was meant to remove Kalira as well as bring in the Elder Brain. So the Elithids were ready to enact the final phase of their plan right at episode 1. But right now they need a new device since their other one didn't work. And right now all they need in order to finish it in order to reclaim part of their lost empire is for the heroes to collect the remaining items for Elwyn and for him to assemble it. The next part of their plan, prepare the population for subjugation. In the opening episodes, Elwyn explained that he created a version of the New Life Elixir because he wanted Kalira to live forever, because she was such a powerful and benevolent ruler. More benevolent than powerful, probably. Now, this part is true. The real Elwyn did want that. He did want to create that elixir, but the Mind Flayers got to him first and turned him into their servant. The elixir he actually created makes those who use it incredibly susceptible to mind control as well as magic that charms people. This is why Faye has received such bizarre reactions when using some of her charm spells at times. Those people who use New Life are prone to obey. Anyone who has taken any version of the New Life Elixir 
is a thrall in waiting. And once the Mind Flayers deem it necessary, they can use their psionic abilities to control large numbers of these individuals at once. They will have control over a sizable part of the population of Pharaoh's Point, that being anyone who has used new life. And they will also have, if everything goes to their plan, control of the Iron Guardians, once Elwyn retrieves the Staff of Control. As a side note, the Mind Flayers had anticipated that they would obtain the Staff of Control when Calera was teleported out of Pharaoh's Point. Elwyn had said they need the Staff of Control because it belongs to Calera to find her. That is just a lie. They just want it so that no one else has it. So to recap, we have a growing number of people in Pharaoh's Point who have taken this new life elixir. Yes, the violent outbursts are a for real side effect of this. But once the Elder Brain shows up, it has a psionic radius of something like five miles. And even if it doesn't show up when the Mind Flayers want it to, if the players somehow delay that or prevent it altogether... The Mind Flayers and the Ulatharid still have their own radius of psionic influence and can control commoners, nobles, other fighters, anyone who's taken it. If you've seen season one of Jessica Jones, the villain Kilgrave, who can basically turn every normal person into his own loyal bodyguard, that's what it's going to be like on a large scale. So the final phase of their plan is to summon the Elder Brain. So once the Elder Brain arrives, in the final phase of their plan, if that happens, I shouldn't talk about it like it's a certainty. But once the final phase of their plan occurs, the Mind Flayers will begin the process of, I'm going to try to pronounce this, Ceramorphosis? I don't know. Page, again, 72 in Volo's Guide to Monsters. Basically, using Mind Flayer tadpoles to create more Mind Flayers. They'll use these on the many inhabitants of Pharaoh's Point to create a new city of Elithids. Hopefully the player characters can stop this from happening. I mean, if they didn't, it would also be super cool because I have no idea how they would uh, deal with that kind of problem. But when am I planning to spring this twist on them? How am I going to foreshadow it? Uh, I'm still working on that. But if everything goes to the Mind Flayer's plan, Elwyn has positioned the functionality of the device in this way, that they need the Staff of Control, and that they need a huge amount of ambient magical energy for it to work. And that these last two components of the device will probably have to happen at the same time. They'll likely need to get in a confrontation with Arizax, and during that confrontation, steal the Staff of Control somehow, get it to Elwyn, and then Elwyn activates the device. So if everything goes to plan, the player characters will be fighting Arizax, and perhaps Agarand, while Elwyn summons the Elder Brain into the city. But I'm going to give the players a bit of warning before this happens in the form of, like I said, additional foreshadowing. Elwyn is going to continue to be his fractured self, that is, his true self is going to try to warn the players, but he will mostly be in thrall mode and carrying out the grand design. The player characters will hopefully have forged a number of alliances with various NPCs and different factions that they will encounter as the campaign progresses. There's still the Arcane Academy, which I want to fold into the campaign at some point, 
and it would be a huge benefit to them if they had a handful of strong wizards that they could rely on. There's a few other factions that they will encounter in the next chapter of the campaign as they try to get their hands on some dragon bone. And another element that I will start subtly working into the background of the campaign in the next few months. Odd sightings of dragons flying high above remote villages or above the outskirts of Pharaoh's Point. Unusual creatures watching the player characters from the shadows. Anywhere you're going to find mind flayers, you may also find, not far away, some Githyanki, a raiding party that has managed to make its way to the Material Plane, to Iterin, tracking the mind flayers and intent on killing them and anything that gets in their way. I can't recall off the top of my head which book it's in. But it is noted that Githyanki raiding ships from the bottom, like if you're on the ground looking up at them as they fly overhead, do have the appearance of dragons. The idea that the heroes would need to make an alliance with one evil group to stop another uh, really fascinated me when I was in the very, very beginning stages of planning this story. And I'm hoping that this is only one of many difficult choices that they have to make to save the realm and the people within it. Maybe they'll end up allying with Agarand and Erizax. Maybe they'll discover the Mind Flayer threat to try to restore Elwyn to his true self. Or maybe one or more of the characters will have their brains eaten. Who knows? So, some foreshadowing that I definitely know that I want to do is for a Githyanki knight to, at some point in the distance, take a, take a run at Elwyn, the idea being that they've figured out that he is a thrall and they want him dead. And the players, of course, would have to stop him, have to stop this Githyanki. And then, you know, would they have the chance to question him? Would he escape? Either way, they would definitely know that, hey, what is this creature that we've never seen before? Why is it after Elwyn? Oh, <sighs> boy, you know what? That feels really good to finally get that out there. But again, I would really like for everyone's feedback. Is this too ambitious? What else can I do to foreshadow this? Not so much that it gives everything away, but enough so that once the truth comes out, that the players will, in hindsight, see all of the signs that they missed. One thing I did forget to mention, the thing that uh, in episode 16, Faye was reading Quaileth. It's the Mind Flayer equivalent of written language. I was very unsure about whether or not comprehend languages the spell works on Quaileth, but I did some additional reading and it definitely does. Anyways, I think that's just about does it for the things that I wanted to talk about. I'll, I'll really quickly say what's coming up in one of the future episodes. Before the players make it back to the surface, I, I want them to come across Agarand and have a chance to have a face-to-face -face with him. I don't want to force an encounter, I want to give them the option of an encounter, and I want to put a few NPCs in jeopardy. Ketvar Kiaro, Spruce Lee's pal, and Warren the Deep Gnome. Gilladab places quite a high value on Deep Gnome companionship, since he's essentially cut off from the rest of his people who are in the Underdark. So I'm going to create a situation where Agarand has come to the underground. The fighting between his forces and the Fathom's fighters continues, but it's at a stalemate. 
and he is down there, and he wants to interrogate some captives. And I want to give the players the chance to, again, either choose to engage with Agaran, maybe try to save the captives, or there will be another scenario where they can avoid him, which will be the easier path. I really do want to work in some scenarios where there's a high-risk, high-reward equation. And so if, if they do manage to save the captives somehow, then Warren is going to reward the players with some treasure that his family is keeping up in Ferris Point. And that would be four gems of a quality sufficient for the device. So if they manage to do this, if they manage to free these captives... They're going to have yet another one of the items that they need to complete this device for Elwyn. So we'll see what happens. I, you know what? In the past, I have really had very poor results with making, I shouldn't say making, with having players actually role play in such a way that their characters would risk their own safety for NPCs. And it's kind of, I guess kind of my own fault, because the stakes are such that if the stakes are the lives of everyone in this realm versus a few captives, as a player, I can really I can really understand how they would get into the mindset where the ends justify their means. Well, we have to steal this and we have to kill that person or let this person die because the greater good is so much greater than these little things. But I'm going to give it a shot anyways, and we'll see how it goes. Anyways, that's it for me for now. Hopefully this did not come off as the rambling of a half-awake, half-drunk dungeon master with too much time on his hands. But I would really love to hear what you think. Uh, And again, please uh, refrain from posting any details about the grand design on the Facebook page where anyone can see it, including including my player, so please don't be a jerk. I really would love to talk with anyone who's interested about it, but uh, just not like that. But as I said before, you can join the Facebook Dungeon Master Only group. Shoot me an email, knightsandnerdspodcast at gmail.com. You can send a direct message to Knights and Nerds Podcast. I'm the only one who reads those, like a direct message. Uh, Or also on Twitter, or on Instagram, where at Knights and Nerds, you can send me a direct message on either one of those as well. All right, I'm done. I am done for now. And we're gonna let the outro music take it away because it's so epic. Like dun 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 dun.